The title of my sermon is Too Weak Not to Pray. 2 Chronicles 14.11 is the text. Really be going through 14, 15, and 16, hopping and skipping through. But we'll be looking at verse 11 of chapter 14 and also chapter 16, verses 12. The premise behind the title is that we are uh, too weak not to pray and the situation is too desperate for us not to recognize our weakness, that we cannot rely on our own strength and still claim sanity. Uh, so I want to look at this to the life of King Asa, and in him we see an exemplary example of what we should be and what um, we should do when faced with insurmountable problems, and also, unfortunately, an example of what not to be and what not to become. Uh, he started his reign well and finished it badly. Uh, he started in humility and independent prayer, and he ended in stubborn self-reliance. And his success and failure are summed up in these two verses, Second Chronicles 14.11 and then Second Chronicles 16.12. Verse 11 of chapter 14 says, And Asa cried unto the Lord his God, and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. Then in chapter 16, verse 12, we see the antithesis. And Asa, in the 30th and ninth year of his reign, was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. So those two statements are really bookends to his reign. He started out well. The first several verses of chapter 14 speak of his success. He did good and right in the sight of the Lord. He was serious about his faith. He was no syncretist. He was not hesitating between two opinions, between serving God and serving Baal. He removed the foreign altars and some of the high places, which is more than can be said for most of the kings, even the good ones. He tore down the sacred pillars. He cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and observe God's commandments. So he enjoyed peace. The kingdom was undisturbed under him for 10 years, and he built and fortified cities during that time. But in doing so, with him, it was not as an alternative to trusting in God, which is always the danger. His reasoning in his own words are in verse 7. Let us build these cities and make about them walls and towers, gates and bars, while the land is yet before us, because we have sought the Lord, our God, we have sought Him, and He hath given us rest on every side. In Asa's mind, trusting in God was not a rejection of instrumental means. You know, when you fight battles, you ordinarily do it with swords and spears and shields and bows and arrows, and so Asa wanted to make sure they were well fortified in the usual and ordinary means of self-defense. And verse 7 closes by telling us that they built and prospered. God was with them. He had a good-sized army. He had 300,000 men 
from Judah, bearing large shields and spears, and he had 280,000 from Benjamin, bearing shields and wielding bows, all of them valiant warriors. It would have been easy at this point for Asa to rely on all his army and to rely on their skill, to rely on all the materiel and the fortifications and to rest easy because he had made so many. It would have been tempting for him to say, like so many others have said, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, drink, and be merry. But he did not do that. In fact, he couldn't do it because a million men from Ethiopia showed up on his doorstep with 300 chariots for war. And if there's one thing that will cause you to wake up and smell the coffee, give you a good dose of smelling salts, it would be that. So what did Asa do? He did not surrender. He went out to meet the Ethiopian army, and he drew up in battle formation. And then he prayed, and I can only imagine that his prayer was full of trembling and fervency. And Asa cried unto the Lord, verse 11, Unto the Lord his God, and he said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. There isn't a hint of self-confidence there. There's no false bravado. It's just fear and trembling. He refers to himself and Judah as them that have no power. And since he had none, there was no basis for trusting in himself and in his own army. He had undivided trust in the Lord. He was too weak not to pray. Help us, O Lord God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. There's no apparent inward struggle between trusting in his army versus trusting in the Lord. It wasn't, his army wasn't big enough for him to trust in it. And so he looked to the only source of help that there was, to God. And isn't that where you want to be in your prayer life? That's where I want to be. Aren't we often bemoaning the fact that our prayers lack fervency? And they're lifeless. But notice how he got there. He didn't schedule it on the calendar. It didn't come by means of an accountability group. It was a fruit of his weakness and his desperation and weakness. He was weak and he knew it. He felt it in his bones. And the stakes were high. You lose that battle, Judah loses it, and they would likely lose hundreds of thousands of men. Those who survived would become slaves, including their wives and daughters. And you know what that means. And Asa would either be killed or he would be turned into some sort of a zoo animal that would be paraded around at festivals, a conquest trophy of Zera, king of the Ethiopians. So the stakes were really high. There's lots of reasons why we don't pray. 
We're too busy. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to say. We feel like we've said it already. We don't have an appetite. It's not a priority. We're undisciplined and so on. But those are all real problems, and they need to be addressed, and good books have been written addressing those subjects. Where I want to focus is this issue of desperation and the lack of it, because desperation will swallow up all the self-discipline problems in a heartbeat and drive the people of God to prayer, no matter how undisciplined they are. A man in a leaking life raft with no ship in sight and sharks circling about, he's not going to need to set an alarm to remind him to pray. He doesn't need to be cajoled or guilt-tripped into it. He will pray like he's never prayed before because there's nothing else to do. There's no one else to call on except the Lord. And we see here with Asa, we see it over and over again through the Scripture. If you look up the phrase, cried out, or cry out, or cried unto, you find many instances of desperate prayer. Uh, the Hebrew, Hebrew word there, cry out, is a word meaning to shriek as if from danger. And then the Greek, it's to croak like a raven or to scream. In Exodus 2.23, the Israelites were being oppressed by Pharaoh. And we read, It came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage. When they were gathered at the Red Sea and the uh, Pharaoh's army is pursuing them, breathing down their necks, it says, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. In Judges 10, we see the Israelites once again sore oppressed because God has turned them over to their enemies. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. And it was desperation that made him cry thus. When the Assyrians approached the gates of Jerusalem with a massive invasion force and they demanded that Judah surrender, King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet got together and they prayed about this and cried out to heaven. When Peter walked on the water, he made the mistake of contemplating the wind and the waves and all the reasons he should not be doing this. And he sank and he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Bartimaeus and his blind friend were desperate because of their blindness and they're sitting by the road and they hear Jesus passing by and they perk up, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And lots of other examples could be given. But the common denominator of them all is desperation. The cry of God's people in each and every circumstance was natural. It was logical. And it was spontaneous, not planned. Don't get me wrong, I'm not against planned prayer. I participate in it 
almost daily. It's important to note in each of these situations that God answered. God answered these cries. Not once did He not. In Judges 10, it sounded like He was not going to. Go call out to your gods. But He could bear their misery no longer. And He answered. He came to the aid of Asa and routed the Ethiopians and their million-man-strong army. Bartimaeus and his friend were healed. Peter was lifted out of the raging waves. God sent an angel to kill 185,000 Assyrians, rescuing Hezekiah and Judah. Israel was saved from Pharaoh's army, and so on. So we have reason for hope. There's a reason to cry out to God. It's not futile. Fervent cries to the Lord ascend beyond the ceiling, and they reach the ears of God. Psalm 34, 15 promises us the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. We all know what James 5, 16 says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And in each case here we see fervent prayer availing much. Psalm 107 is very instructive on this point. The psalm is a record of the Lord's dealings with His people, and there's this pattern to it. The Lord disciplines His people. He brings them low to the point where they feel their need of Him, and then they cry out to Him. He then saves them, and they then thank Him. And you see it over and over again and again. Affliction, desperation, fervent prayer, deliverance, thanksgiving. Affliction, desperation, fervent prayer, deliverance, thanksgiving, and then it happens again. In verses 10 through 15 of Psalm 107, it says, Such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of the Lord and contemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore He brought down their heart with labor. They fell down. And there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and brake their bands in asunder. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. So this, in my mind, raises a question. If desperation is the need of the hour... What are we supposed to do? Especially if we're not desperate. Can't just summon this up, can you? And we're certainly not supposed to ape it or affect it. It's got to be genuine, if anything. A genuine cry to God in desperation. How do we get there? Well, I want to come back to that at the end, but let's continue on with the king, King Asa, and see what happened. After his cry of desperation and the great deliverance that he experienced from the Ethiopian army, and uh, he then went and routed the cities of Gerar, which were Philistine cities in league with the Ethiopians at that time, and out of those victories came lots of spoils of war, lots of loot. 
and riches. Second uh, Chronicles 15 continues on with Asa's reign, and it's a feel-good story for a while. The Spirit of God comes upon Azariah, the prophet, and he goes out to meet Asa with a good and encouraging message from the Lord. And he says to him, the Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. And in those times, there was no peace to him that went out nor to him that came in. But great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries, and nation was destroyed of nation and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. Be ye strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. That was a hint. Azariah was telling Asa the Lord's predictable pattern. He disciplines those he loves with various afflictions. He troubles them with various distresses. But when they turn to him in their distress, he hears them and helps them, just like with the Ethiopians. Remember that, Asa. He did not remember it. Or it might be more accurate to say he did not keep it in remembrance. There's things that we forget because we make no attempt to remember it. But before they went badly for him, that's coming, but before that they continued to go well. He heard the words of Azariah and he took courage. He removed the abominable idols from the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country. Of Ephraim, he then restored the altar of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon, who resided with him, for many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord, his God, was with him. Then there came a great day of dedication. In the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign, the people gathered and sacrificed to the Lord many oxen and sheep, and they made a covenant with the Lord with all their heart and soul. And it was decreed that anyone who did not keep the covenant and tried to opt out of it, they would be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. And everybody took that quite seriously. This was a glorious day. They made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets and horns. Verse 15 describes the mood. All Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, and they sought him with their whole desire, and he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. Good times. And then Asa took on the queen mother, who's his grandmother. Verse 16 says that he removed her from the position of queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. He cut down her horrid image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. So he was embodying that command that Jesus Christ would give, that you must hate your father and mother to be my disciple. That's the kind of hatred he had in mind. So God rewarded Asa for all of this, and he enjoyed a long period of peace until, until his downfall. 
And like so many before him, he proved to be one who could not handle prosperity. And that's really a question for us here in the prosperous West. Can we handle prosperity? Are we handling prosperity? Years of peace and success did not bring him closer to God. He drifted away from God. The warning of Deuteronomy 8 was fulfilled in him. When thou hast eaten and art full, when thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee, beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. A new threat arose. Basha, king of Israel, to the north, went and took Ramah the city of the tribe of Benjamin in the south, and he fortified it in order to prevent anyone in the northern kingdom from coming down to Jerusalem to worship anymore there. He was tired of these defections. But what did Asa do? Did he call on the Lord as he had before? No. He took treasures out of the temple of the Lord and bribed Benadad, king of Aram or Syria, convinced him to break his treaty with Basha and attack various cities in Israel, and that stopped Basha from fortifying Ramah. It worked, but it's a bad sign when disobedience works. When compromise succeeds, it's far better for us when God recompenses our disobedience with failure. And woe to us when we succeed in our compromises. Awesome must have been proud of his ingenuity. He had a problem, he fixed it. No need to call on God when you're as smart as Asa is. Well, enter Hanani the prophet the seer, he comes to rebuke Asa for his foolishness. And he said to him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Assyria escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Asa did not receive that rebuke humbly. He did not repent and change his ways. He was enraged. How dare you say that to me? Who do you think you are? Have you forgotten how much progress we've made under my leadership? You remember the situation of the Ethiopians, do you? Well, do you remember all the reforms I made after that? 
and how I've been zealous for the Lord God and all the good works that I've been doing. How dare you suggest that I have been unfaithful to the Lord considering my track record? And he threw him in prison. And that apparently wasn't enough to quench his rage because it says that he went out then oppressed some of the people too. He had to find some more innocent victims to vent his spleen on. So finally we come to that verse that I indicated was the summary of Asa's failure and the closing book into his life, 2 Chronicles 16, 12. His faith in the battle with the Ethiopians was the apex of his life, and this marks the nadir. And Asa in the 30 and 9th year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great, yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord but to the physicians. What a sad ending to an overall good reign of a good king. And just like so many others, he did not finish well. He would not humble himself before the Lord. He would not confess his sins and plead for the Lord's mercy. And when the Lord afflicted him severely with a severe disease in his feet, he didn't repent. He spent the last two years in agony with throbbing feet and a stiff neck and a hard heart. And his attitude seems to have been, I'll try any Savior but the Lord. I'll try any solution except repentance. So he went to the physicians and, you know, let's try some hot and cold rubs. Let's try some dietary changes. Let's try some physical therapy. Let's try some essential oils. You know, who knows what he tried. But nothing works when your problem is God, and the only solution you have is repentance, and that's the one solution you won't tolerate. So he is a cautionary tale. He goes from the heights to the depths over the course of his reign, and we have to ask the question, what happened here? What happened to this man? How did he go from humble dependence on God to proud self-sufficiency? And I think the answer is one inch at a time. Imperceptibly. Over time, his success and his wealth proved to be toxic to humble faith. Prosperity just isn't the soil in which faith ordinarily grows. Faith has to be kept in lively exercise or it atrophies. But how can you keep up a lively faith when life is so good and there's so many other saviors competing for the job? So, what about you? This isn't just a nice biographical sketch, is it? We have to ask the hard questions of the man in the mirror. I've been asking those questions of myself. I'm sure that you want to be in the spiritual condition he was in when he humbly called on the Lord in dependence when he was confronted with the overwhelming danger of the Ethiopian army. And I'm sure you do not want to be in the condition that he was in at the end of his life. So how do we cultivate the former and avoid the latter? Is it even possible to do so?
It is hard for the rich to get into heaven, Jesus said, and most of us in the West are rich. We have an abundance, and it's not helping us thrive spiritually. It's killing us. In Old Testament days, we see God bringing affliction on His people when they're fat and happy. We see God humbling His people to wake them up and show them their need. But we don't really see the people in days of prosperity doing much of anything to address the problem. And that's because they usually don't see the problem. So I want to come back to a minute to what God is doing to show us our need, because He is doing some things. But I want to briefly address just first this question of what can we do to cultivate a sense of weakness and dependence. And I I want to emphasize at the outset that this is not a five-step plan. This is not some method these things won't work apart from the grace of God working in them, in them and through them. But we have to avoid two errors. We have to avoid the error of uh, thinking that God has done all He can do and so everything's up to us on the one hand, but we also need to avoid the error of saying that since God must do the work in our hearts by grace, therefore there is nothing for us to do. So in the letter to the lukewarm Laodiceans, I think we have a message for today, Revelation 3, 17 through 20. God spoke to a wealthy and prosperous people there in Laodicea to a church in that setting. And he said to them, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. So here are five things that we have a responsibility to do. These are not magic solutions. These are just things we need to do. Put on ISAV so that you may see correctly. That is... Apply the truth of Scripture to your eyes. You are not strong. You are a weakling. Resist the flattering lies of the devil with the truth. Drill the truth into your head. Pray that God help you to believe it. You don't have to pretend that you're weak. You are weak. (laughs) You just have to believe what the Bible says. Live in reality, not this fantasy world where we're rich and wealthy and have need of nothing. Buy gold and raiment from Christ. That is, acquire it without money and without price. I think this is a reference to laying aside our filthy rags of our own righteousness. Righteousness. 
and putting on the white robe of Christ's righteousness given to us through faith that we are rich in Him but poor in ourselves and keeping those two things in mind. In myself, I'm utterly impoverished. I have nothing. Zero. I'm, I'm a beggar. I've got nothing. But in Christ, I am rich. His righteousness is mine and there's nothing lacking in His righteousness. Standing in Him, you can't get any better than you already are because you can't improve on perfection. Christ perfectly obeyed the law. You can't throw extra credit points on top of it to some sort of work of supererogation. It's a perfect righteousness, and that is, that is what you stand in. That is the riches. That's the gold and the raiment. Number three, be zealous and repent, Christ says to this church. Confess the sin of self-sufficiency. Confess the sin of imagining yourself to be strong. Confess the sin of acting like you don't need God. Number four, open the door to a knocking Christ. Quit closing your heart to Him. Open the door and be reconciled to Him and welcome Him in to commune with you and renew your covenant vows. And with respect to the money and the wealth, give it away. Your bigger barns are a stumbling block. Empty them and distribute them to those in need. There's no mystery to why we don't have a lively faith when we're storing up money barns to trust in instead. This won't be a one-time thing. God loves givers, and He pours it back in there. So it's constantly being replenished, and it needs to be constantly going out. We need to be like a river, not a dammed-up reservoir. That's what we should do. That's what we must do. A question worth asking is, how much money do I need to sleep well at night? It's a question I, we're kind of wrestling with as a church. How much do we need in our account as a church for the rainy day? Of course, there's no answer to that question, is there? Well, we kind of act like there's an answer. We act like there's a certain amount below which we're really in trouble. And at that point, we need to really start worrying. Let's get it out in the open and <laughs> call out the elephant in the living room. These things have to be done by the grace of God and the strength that He supplies. We must do it in joy and not drudgery, not in the mindset that these are meritorious works. But let me return to this issue of what God does to remind His people that they're weak and need Him. I think God is doing for that for us. Have you looked around you recently? Have you checked out what's going on in this world and in this country? And in our churches, America, as we once knew it, is over. It's over. You cannot recover from this sort of thing. But God is good. He is showing us that we need Him. We won't sense that need for Him if it's not painful.
And it is painful to watch this. He is afflicting an arrogant, self-satisfied country. He's showing us how fragile we are. It's as if he's unleashed a thousand termites to chew at the trunk of this nation. And trying to politically deal with any of them is a futile game of whack-a-mole. Where do you even start? There is no politician, no president that could ever fix this. Ever. There's the border. There's $33 trillion in government debt and counting, plus all the unfunded liabilities, plus all the consumer debt. There's rampant inflation. There's fentanyl, meth, heroin, and marijuana. All the other destructive substances that are killing hundreds of thousands of people each year. There's the destruction of the family, sexual immorality, fornication, hookups, homosexuality, transgenderism, increased violence, the murdering of babies by the millions, lawlessness, spiking suicide rates, the deep state, the corruption of elections. When we talk about a banana republic, we, we're no longer speaking in hyperbole. There's the steady erosion of the Bill of Rights. There's abysmal schools and universities, which are usually nothing more than indoctrination centers. Woke corporations, DEI, ESG, diversity, equity, inclusion, environmental, social governance. There's these things called public-private partnerships, which are just a euphemism for fascism. There's threats from hostile foreign nations. There's the threat of civil war, the threat of digital currency, the foster care problem, sex trafficking problem. And then there is the church, or what goes by the name, there is false teachers galore, false churches galore, false brethren galore, shallow preaching, shallow evangelism, constant quarrels over secondary matters, and yet on the other side, false unity and ecumenicalism. A church that looks a little different from the world, and even in churches that are doctrinally sound, is there a prayer meeting? Oftentimes not. And if there is, is it anything more than a gossip session or an almost exclusive focus on physical problems? Is the preaching a searching kind of preaching that makes a beeline for the heart? Or is it just more information for the head? Is there church discipline and a concern for the purity of the church? Or is that considered judgmental and the church is utterly leavened? Are the pastors and elders shepherding the souls in their churches or are they just preaching to them? That is salt that has lost its saltiness. And according to Jesus, it's good for nothing. It's not even good enough for a manure pile. The point is that God is judging America. And it's starting with the household of God. This is not going to be pretty. But what I'm trying to get across is I'm not trying to be 
gloomy, though I know I am. I was trying to deal with reality. The Ethiopian army was a million men strong breathing down their necks. It, it would do no good to pretend they're not there. And it would do us no good to pretend that all the things I've just cataloged are not there. And that time is short. This is our Ethiopian moment. This is our million man strong army breathing down our necks. Only this is an army of demons. Is there not cause to be fervent in prayer? Is there no cause? Isn't there a rational ground for desperation? How much worse does it need to get? The lifeboat is sinking. The sharks are circling. And there's no one to call on except the Lord. And at what point do we cry out like we mean it? It's either an outpouring of the Spirit of God or it's lights out. The prophet told Asa that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. And to put it another way, to put it another way, God is looking for a few weak men and women. That is, they are weak in their own eyes. They know they're weak. They know they're powerless. What can we do against all of this? Because they're powerless and because they know it, they look to the one who has power. They look to God. Call upon him. Are you weak enough for God to show himself strong for you? When we are weak, then and only then are we strong. We are too weak not to pray. Let's pray. Father, we are weak. You are strong. We need you. Our churches need you. We pastors need you. We have no other ideas. We have no other saviors but Christ. We have no other solutions but repentance. We repent of our self-sufficiency and we turn to you and we call out to you we're counting on these scriptures being true, that your ears are open to the cry of your people. In Jesus' name.